Before we start, some sad news. Last episode, you met Sharice Kiwatton, a member of our editorial board. I said that before we'd made even one minute of radio, we'd almost lost her. Last Wednesday night, we did. Sharice died. She was a friend and well-loved by our community, and she'll be deeply missed. On the street or at a meeting, I'd hear her sing out, Hi, Garth. That little two-note phrase said, I'm happy to see you, and it's been looping in my head for days now. I won't ever hear it again. Sharice was president of the British Columbia Association of People on Methadone, or BCA poem. She was also a leading activist of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. We'd recorded most of this episode by the time we heard the news. I didn't really know how to finish, or even if we should. So I asked Laura Shaver, who's also on our editorial board. Laura was Sharice's best friend. I said, should we hit pause? Should we down tools? Laura and I stood for a while in the snow, hugging and crying. And then Laura said, hell no. This story is about Sharice. It's about all of us, and it needs to be told. The crisis doesn't stop, and neither do we. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 2, Change in Tolerance. Hey. What's up? How's it going? I'm at a clinic in East Vancouver. I come here a lot. It's part of the monotonous life of a methadone user. Methadone replaces heroin. It's meant to flatten out the painful oscillation between being high and being dope sick. When it's working right, it stays in your system at least a day. Methadone works pretty well for me. I don't need to hustle and panic the way I did when I was using heroin. And it's legal. That means that I don't have to worry about overdosing on contaminated drugs or getting arrested. So I probably owe you some kind of clinic fees too. Some dough, dough rainy. Um, you're at 200 right now. All right. Um, next time. I'm okay. I like the staff at this clinic and they like me. Maybe it's because I've learned how to fit in with a certain class of professional people. But here, like any methadone program, the starting assumption is that I'm lying. So I piss in a cup every time, every visit, to test if I've been doing heroin or other drugs. We all piss. It's humiliating. Them's the rules. I want to start the story back in the day. In the 1990s. Back then, I was a 20-something punk, and I played in a band called Hogtide. We sounded like this. I was probably the least subtle dope fiend ever. Six-foot-four guy with albinism, you know, platinum hair and all that. I was also an activist in going to school, but more and more, I was totally wired to heroin. A fix would last just a few hours. By 1998, my habit had crept up to about 100 bucks a day. 
so how did I pay for the drugs? I had a few different gigs. I was a researcher for hire, I worked in construction, and I'd pawn my guitar. But I still had trouble getting up enough cash. And the dope wasn't really even doing much for me anymore. The best I could hope for was a kind of not sick. Avoiding dope sickness had become my full-time job. And so I decided to quit. Not for the first time. I had puked and shook my way through cold turkey enough to know what that's like. Days of agony, defeat, and then back to dope. And so this time, I'd try methadone instead. I walked across the hall and knocked on my neighbor Simon's door. Simon was my heroin dealer. Obviously, that's not his real name. I'm not a rat. Simon was a short guy who always wore athletic gear, but I never saw him play a sport. I asked him if he knew where I could get some methadone, and he told me, I sell the disease as well as the cure. And then he pulled out a large bottle with the pharmacy label scratched off. I bought 100 mils from Simon that day, and I wrote down a little plan on some scrap paper. 40 mils for day one, 30 for day two, 20 for day three, 10 for day four, and then by day five, I'd be done. Ha. Here's what actually happened. By day three, I was dope sick and miserable. The taper was way too steep. And so I thought, fuck the cure. And I walked back across the hall and bought some of Simon's disease instead. Eventually, I tried to get legit methadone, like from a doctor. The first doctor I saw just turned me away. And another put me on a laughably small dose. I was often on methadone like this for a few years, always topping up with heroin. And then my niece was born. I remember holding her in my arms for the first time. She's just 10 minutes old, tiny. But I'm thin and shaky, and I look down at her, and I know that I can't be around her when I'm sick like this. And so I decide to get on the methadone program properly, for maintenance, not just for the fast trip down. Finally, I found a doctor who would raise my dose until the methadone would hold me, all on its own. I used less heroin, and eventually, I used no heroin. And that felt like control. But really, other people had the control, not me. I remember one day around nine years ago, the pharmacist looked at me and he said, we got nothing for you today. Apparently the methadone clinic had tried to fax a script, but the pharmacy's fax machine was off. So I was screwed. Standing at the pharmacy counter, I knew what was going to happen next. The panic of dope sickness crashed over me. So I went out and scored. Ask anyone who takes methadone and they'll tell you, it's a slog. All the rules and the daily pharmacy visits, that's why we call it liquid handcuffs. It can make you feel like you're flatlining through life, or constipated, or sweaty, but still, methadone saved my life. It's all I do now. And methadone has saved the lives of thousands of people here in British Columbia and around the world. That's why what happened in 2014 is so fucked up.
<laughs> what, are, what are we drinking here? Uh, just cheap ass punk rock Paps Blue Ribbon. <laughs> do you, do you I've been telling this story for so long, and so have the other people on Crackdown's editorial board. When we first got the idea to make a podcast, we all knew that this had to be an episode. That's why I reached out to my old friend, let's call him Ray, and I asked if he'd take a walk with me. Do you, do you need to smoke to go with that? Huh? Do you need no, to smoke? No, I quit no? smoking. Oh, good for you. Yeah, but I do do the vaporizer. Right. So, yeah. What's your favorite flavor? Do you, do you smoke Fruity Pebbles? It was caramel flavors, but now it's mango. Back in the day, I knew Ray as a guitarist in the punk scene. He was the kind of guy who had great technical chops, but he didn't feel the need to play an endless solo in every song. Do you remember when you and me first kind of got to know each other a little bit or when we were in the same... Like, did we ever play a same show together or something? We, we never played at the same show, but I distinctly remember meeting you. You had long dreads at the time. <laughs> I had no idea that you had albinism. I just thought you had the wickedest bleach in the world. <laughs> I think maybe that was the plan. Like, I think I was trying to, like, uh, camouflage, you know, or something. You know, like, hide in plain sight or something. I certainly didn't notice it. <laughs> So, um, tell me about um, the music, right? Like, like what? I guess we can't mention all the band names and stuff, but what was uh, music to you? Music's always been in my family. And uh, unfortunately, in my school, you had to choose between art or music. Uh. And, and uh, so I, I invariably chose music and ended up playing bass because it was the only electric instrument there and I wanted it to be Jimi Hendrix or something, even though he was a guitar player. I've always <laughs> known you as a guitar player. Yeah, but I was a bass player first and foremost. So you were playing music and you were in bands when I knew you and then, and then we're both kind of in this long arc of on methadone. Mm -hmm. Like what was before methadone? What was methadone supposed to fix? Methadone was supposed to fix the fact that I had been dabbling with stuff that everybody else dabbled with a little bit too much. And I was getting physical effects. So you're getting dope sick. Dope you, sick. you were chipping yeah, and yeah, then yeah. chipping turned into a little And more then the fifth cold turkey, you know, and then you'd get through this five, seven days and then somebody, a check would invariably show up in the mail or, or somebody would pass by or, you know, it was just hard to avoid. And you go to a doctor to look for help and they say, well, this is what we're going to do for you. And when, it, when did that start? When did you go to the doctor and look for help? I think it was probably uh, 2000. What changed when you got when you got on to the like yeah, from the time you're chipping and kind of getting dope sick and the checks are going out to, to heroin mm -hmm. and then you got on methadone? Like what changed between those two things? Um, well, a little bit more stability. Uh, I did start working. What you, what was your job? Um, I, I was, uh, I became, um, a journeyman construction worker. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, I had my own trade. So well, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was teaching people at, by that time how to, uh, do finishing and stuff. So I was doing well buying musical gear, you know, uh, traveling a little and, and bit. And bands, you were doing bands again, Oh right? yeah, yeah. yeah. You were, that was going good, right? Yeah. It was going really, really good. Then I, I start to see these sort of, I have these Facebook Messenger messages from you around 2014. Mm -hmm. 
February 2014 was the switch. For a long time, methadone worked like this in British Columbia. A pharmacist would order some powder from whatever manufacturer they wanted, and when it arrived, they'd mix it into orange tang. Then, the pharmacist got paid a healthy fee to watch us drink it down. This is what things were like for Ray and his partner and me and Laura and approximately 15,000 other methadone maintenance patients in British Columbia. But things were about to change. In February, everyone was switched to a new drug called methadose. Because I was involved with some drug user activist groups, I'd heard the switch was coming. I knew that methadose was a formulation of methadone made by the pharmaceutical company Mallinckrodt. It was shipped out ready-mixed. It doesn't have to be refrigerated. The government said this was a big advantage. I also knew that methadose was going to taste like cherry cough syrup, and I knew it came 10 times more concentrated than the old stuff. That meant that people were going to end up with a lot less of it in their cups. But Ray, like most people, didn't know any of this. Do you remember? Did, did you get advance warning? What was that like? I had no advance warning whatsoever. What did the pharmacist say? He just simply said, this is the new deal. That was it. It's the same thing, trust us. Trust us. I, first off, I remember the horrible taste that just sticks in your mouth for like an hour. I, since then, I started using cough drops right after. Um, and I remember being really concerned if this was even going to work or what it was, because nobody told us anything. It took a few days, but then one morning, Ray woke up with goosebumps and a runny nose. He knew this feeling. He's starting to get dope sick. Ray checks with his partner, and the same thing's happening with her. At first, they don't know whether to blame methadose or something else. This might be psychological. You know, maybe this is just us freaking out about nothing, much ado about nothing. I, I actually thought that it might have something to do with my liver or my organs. And I'm, I'm disease-free uh, when it comes to uh, hep and all that stuff. But uh, I thought maybe my system had been compromised and maybe I just wasn't holding it as well as I should be. And I had blood work done and... So, so you, you were feeling sick and you went to a doctor and said, can you test and see what's going on with me? Yes. Yes, I did. I thought my uh, ALT levels or my liver functions, whatever they're called, uh, something was up, you know? Like, it, it, just, it just was going... It seemed to me it was just passing through my body too quickly. It was uh, after a period of time, we came to the realization that this just wasn't right. It, there was something amiss. Like, uh, we just were never feeling good. And we got a phone number that we hadn't used in years. And that's when we started re-chipping. So what happened after you, you're chipping again? What happened to the bands and the the journeyman and all that what well i couldn't keep my word and i was a really responsible construction worker guy if they told me to be in richmond or maple ridge even if it meant that i had to leave the house at 3 30 in the morning because there's no proper transit i would be there i just couldn't keep that schedule because it just you know i mean i can't work sick as a dog all day especially if it's not even holding me 
the 24 hours that it promises. It's not even holding me 12. Not even holding me 10. Eventually, Ray decides this isn't all just in his head. He thinks methadose sucks, and he's using dope again. I'm worried about that, especially with all the fentanyl flying around. So I give him a couple of naloxone kits. So I have, like... Uh, like, like, like to walk and chat a little bit more, but I have one weird request for you that it was just occurring to me when we were walking here and we were talking about guitars and stuff. Could I record you playing just a little, like yeah, acoustic yeah, guitar? Is cool. that okay? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to? Should we I walk that way? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was good, man. I don't know. After I get home from my walk with Ray, I start to look through a box of old files. These are notes and papers I've kept on the methadone change all the way back to 2014. I actually started to cover methadose as a journalist before the government even made the switch. I must have 150 different kinds of bureaucrats and undersecretaries in this contact list here. I don't even remember who some of these people are. After rummaging around for a while, I find an interview I recorded in January of 2014, just on the cusp of the formulation change. This interview is with Laura Shaver, who I was just starting to get to know back then. We're close friends now, and she's on Crackdown's editorial board. Check, check, two, two, one, one. Laura is a methadone patient and a force to be reckoned with. I've seen her give interviews to newspaper and television reporters, and I've seen her stand up to cabinet ministers. When we sat down to do the interview, Laura apologized. She had a busy day ahead of her, and she needed to eat lunch while we talked. Um, thanks for talking with us, Laura. Um, can you tell us, like, your name and your uh, official position here? Sure. Um, my name's Laura Shaver. I am the vice president here at Vandu, which is Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, um, as well as the president of BCA Palm, which is British Columbia Association of People on Methadone. Um, so we're here to talk a little bit about um, as of, it was supposed to be November 1st, but now it will be February 1st. Um, there is going to be a new methadone coming. Um, it's As of right now, it's called methadose. Um, one of the biggest things about the new methadone is that it is 10 times stronger, which means if you are 100, say you're on 150 mils of methadone, when you take the new 
the methadose, I'll say, um, you will only take 15 mils. This is really what Laura and I were worried about back then, how concentrated the methadose was going to be. Laura was especially concerned about people who used diverted methadone on the street. If nobody tells them about the change, they may drink too much and overdose. So Laura makes posters and she puts them up all across Vancouver, in doctor's offices, in pharmacies, and on the streets. She makes them bright, with pictures, so that people who have trouble reading will get the point. Like if you could send one message out, would it be, don't change the methadone? Would it be, give us more time? Or would it be information about the product? I mean, what's your, what's your best case scenario for this? Like if you could have your way. Um, all the above? How about can we have a decision whether we want to move to this new methadone um, and as well as give time for us to adjust to this and to get the information out. The worst thing about this is it just shows again that we have um, barely any input. You're on methadone now, this is what you will be taking um, as of February 1st. We have no choice. Eventually, the conversation starts to wander. Laura tells me that back when she was wired, she'd steal to get by. She spent time in jail, and there's lots of stuff she did back then that she doesn't want to remember. But since getting on methadone, she'd been able to avoid dope sickness, and that let her come into her own as an activist. I have learned so much. My computer skills are awesome. I write proposals. I, um, I plan to have a full-time job out of it in the end. Um, I, have a loud I have a loud voice. When I talk, people listen. And so there's so many people who can't talk or won't. Um, and so that's why I do. Yeah, I think we're good. Cool, cool. Thanks, thanks, Laura. You're welcome. You guys, I'm really sorry that this is happening. Don't, it's all good. Like, this, this has to be real, right? Like, whatever we're doing, it's just, this is what's happening in our life. Yeah. After listening to that old tape with Laura, I asked her to do another interview. This one starts out very differently than the last one. Laura's cooking up heroin. And I'm having trouble setting up my gear. Yeah. You know what? Oh my like, God, it is quite on me. I'm going to need your lighter. Yep, 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 yep. Here it comes. Sorry. Yep. No, it's Thanks. okay. Do you I want me to run some hot water so you can feet. stick the... Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that does the job for me. If it's already in the barrel, I just run it under the hot water, you yeah. know? Check one, two, three, four, five. Ow. <laughs> I think right, I might have to... Uh, down a bit. Are you okay there? Everything's good Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, Garth, say stuff. I'm saying stuff. Hi, Garth. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Um, so I was looking at all the things I wrote for us, all the things you and me did together, all the meetings, all the emails, and we've just done a shit ton of stuff. And it's kind of like to describe that, I have to make us remember. And so, like, today I'm just going to ask you to help remember some stuff with me, and maybe you and me can, like, bring it back. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, can you give me an average day, like what a day would have been like before the switch for you? So I would be up um, at 8 o'clock in the morning. I would, you know, do my thing, get up and go to my pharmacy, drink my methadone, and then come back. But when I woke up, I woke up not feeling like I needed to have methadone. If I didn't actually drink the drink, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
um, no. I guess what so I'm like trying to say So like a day didn't is, have dope sickness in it? Yes, not at all. And I wasn't using heroin daily. And so what did that mean for your life? Like what did you do during the day? Um, I came and volunteered here at Van Du and I was fighting for people's rights that were on drugs. I, I felt like I'd gotten to where I wanted to be after being a heroin user and methadone consumer for 20-some-odd years. I believed what I was told, that the medication was going to be the same, that it would be fine and I would be able to continue with the work and the life that I had. And I was so wrong. I didn't think, I never in my wildest dreams did I think it was going to be as bad as it was. Do you remember that first day that you went in to go take Methodos? Do you remember it, um, what it was like? I do because you know what? It just so happened that my methadone script was up February 1st. So I probably initially was like the first person in BC to have it. Well, it the first thing that bothered me is the taste and the consistency. It was like exactly like drinking cough cherry cough syrup. The other methadone was like drinking orange tang with a little bit of a zip to it. Take us to the pharmacy that morning. So, uh I went into my pharmacy and I gave the prescription to my pharmacist. It was that day, I didn't feel really any difference. It was the middle of the night, I think February 3rd. Um, I woke up feeling like uh, my legs would were moving and couldn't sleep and I felt like twitches. So this is like, these are the classic symptoms of dope sickness. And you might not have felt that for a long time, right? So you're in bed and your yeah. legs are twitching. And what, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, what the fuck? Like, excuse my language, but how, what, what, whoa, what's going on? I said to my partner, Martin, like, I am, I am dope sick. Like, I am, I'm dope sick. I, uh, Do you remember what Martin said? Um, you just, just, just relax, Laura. It's, it, you know, it's new. Maybe it's just part. You're thinking this or, and I was like, well, I'm going to be doing heroin. That means I'm going to be robbing jewelry stores. That means I'm going to be in jail. That means I'm going to remember the awful, awful things that I did. And this is not my decision. I didn't do this. I was trying so hard to keep my life together. And then somebody else decided for my for me, what medication they were going to give me, and it was insufficient. This, by the 6th of February, I was really, my body really felt it. Like, it was, it, it, it was bad, and I started to use, I started to use heroin right then, right away, because I'm not, I, I can't do withdrawal, it doesn't work for me. No doubt. This is what a BCA POM meeting sounds like today. We start with a roll call. Usually there's 20 or 30 names. 
But after February of 2014, there wasn't any point in doing this. Sometimes you could count on one hand how many people were there. Sometimes it was literally just me. And standing in that empty room, I was just like, what's going on? Where the hell is everybody? Everybody fell apart. People were out having to hustle for drugs again. And people that hadn't been using forever had to actually go out and start doing crime. And it just, and not only that, the people that were running the group, which was myself and others, weren't able to do that. In the months after the switch, we tried everything we could think of. Laura, Charisse, and me, and what was left of BC APOM, we began a campaign to get access to the old methadone again. So any particulars on who wants to do what? I'm going to be the human mic stand. So. We handed out flyers, we put up posters, and we got signatures on petitions. With the help of a doctor, we collected blood samples from BCA POM members to see if methadose was sticking around in our bodies. It was ridiculous if you think about it. I'm not the guy with the lab. I'm the guy who pisses in the cup. But we had to do something. Okay, got it. So it's basically to get, get so more options into usage. Can you, can you remember how it was for you during that time, like what you were seeing coming through the door and what it was experiencing? So I think we were really worried as a clinician community that we would suddenly be overdosing everyone because they were only on 10% of the former volume of liquid that people were taking before. This is Dr. Christy Sutherland. I'm meeting her just outside of a coffee shop. She tells me that at the time of the switch, she had hundreds of methadone patients. Um, and I was just sort of on the sidelines of this as just a community methadone provider. But I remember that month that it happened because patients started to trickle in and uh, they would tell me, this doesn't have legs. That was the common thing that people said. And I didn't really understand what that meant. I was like, well, what, what do you mean? And they said, I wake up every morning dope sick. Uh, it's different. It's not the same drug. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they've told us that it's the same drug. Like, this is quite strange. And patients would be like, it's definitely different, Dr. Sutherland. I feel horrible. I would say almost all of my patients started reporting that they just felt worse uh, over the coming weeks. Hundred, hundreds of patients, and so you said almost all of those hundreds of patients eventually showed up and said, I'm dope sick. Yeah, um, a lot of them just spontaneously brought it up to me, but then I started asking um, once it became apparent that this was quite a common thing. That's, and that's, uh, that's 2014, like, so that's the months after February, is that right? Yeah, exactly. And so, like, as a physician, you just say, like, oh, okay, well, what can we do? So um, people try going up on the dose or splitting the dose or, um, you know, trying other medications. But uh, just it really, uh, you know, I didn't come up with any great solution to help people feel better in the moment. I can't get this conversation out of my head. It's a terrifying thought. The province switched nearly 15,000 people over the course of just one month. And so I wonder, how many people assumed that it was all in their head, like Ray did? And how many of them woke up with twitchy legs and got dope sick and started using again, like Laura? How many people overdosed? How many people died? 
I gotta figure this out. So I go to meet with Ohenya Socius, a physician and research scientist, and with Ryan McNeil, an assistant professor and Crackdown's scientific advisor. Effectively, the the change happened beginning in February 1st, 2014, and we started work on it that week. You know, I remember that first interview, and all of a sudden we were struck by, hey, this doesn't have legs. It's not holding me like the old methadone did. And, you know, as we got a little bit further into the work, it was kind of a bit of a eureka moment of there's something really significant happening here that we need to understand. Ryan and his team talked with 34 methadone patients in the first few months after the switch. One indigenous woman told him, I was sweating hard, tossing and turning at nighttime. Methadose is crap. A man in his 50s said, I still don't understand this fucking bullshit, but I don't think I really want to be on it. In 2015, Ryan's paper is published. Sharice is co-author. I remember thinking, okay, now this is a peer-reviewed study. Maybe it might convince the Ministry of Health. Maybe they'll give us the old methadone back. And so I emailed them Ryan's study. But the ministry didn't find it very compelling. They criticized it for having only 34 participants. In an emailed statement to me, they said, The Ministry of Health is aware of a very small number of reports of some patients having a wearing-off effect of methadose. But they added that methadose contains the same active ingredient as the previously compounded covered solution. Patients are getting the same drug, they wrote, and the same amount of the drug for their prescribed doses. In other words, no way. Well, what, what we did, we, we used uh, data from a large cohort of people who, who use drugs and are HIV positive uh, and, and are living with HIV. This is Ohenya Socius. As Ryan was working on his study, Ohenya started to follow it up with a much larger study. This one had over 300 participants. And we found like very interesting and concerning uh, findings. Particularly, we saw that before the policy change, there was a, a, around 40% of people were uh, reporting that they were uh, still using heroin. And after the policy change, this, this increased to over uh, 50%. The striking finding is that it was like uh, almost immediately after, after the policy change. We can see that something happened. Ohenya wasn't the only academic who noticed this kind of spike. Alyssa Greer and Jane Buxton from the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control surveyed 405 methadone patients. They were recruited from harm reduction sites across BC. Over half said they'd used opioids after the switch. I emailed this study to the ministry as well. They called this one interesting, but wrote that 400 respondents represent less than 3% of all patients using methadone. Apparently, they still weren't convinced. I also wanted to know what Malincrot Pharmaceuticals had to say. On June 9, 2014, I emailed them and a representative responded within just a few hours. She told me that there was a 1999 paper published by an addiction medical specialist named Mark Gorovich. According to Malincrot, the paper showed that, quote, the observed patient intolerance to switching formulation appears not to have a pharmacodynamic basis. Appears not to have a pharmacodynamic basis. Pharmacodynamic just means the way that a drug affects the body. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. What did the Malincrot representative mean? How could this not be about how methadose affects our bodies? 
There's effectively this debate circling in the literature around methadone formulation changes, and that's, are people experiencing change in tolerance due to a psychosocial factor? One thing I didn't know in 2014 that I know now is that academics know this shit happens. They call it change in tolerance. That basically means that patients can end up getting sick when their methadone formulation gets changed, or they need to raise their doses, or they start taking illicit drugs again. One paper from the 90s looked at a UK clinic. They decided to switch the patients from pills to liquid methadone. The patients hated the new stuff so much they nicknamed it Dethadone. Over 20 years, there's a lot of examples of these formulation changes having really serious public health outcomes. And during that time, social scientists have been debating whether these outcomes are caused by what they call psychosocial factors. So the mixture tastes different. They perceive it differently. And is that what's driving them to have worse outcomes following a formulation change? Or is it a pharmacodynamic issue? Is it something actually with the formulation itself and how it's metabolized? So is it all in our heads or is it all in the juice? And... We really don't have a definitive answer that it's not one or the other. That pharmacodynamic question has been adequately addressed. And very particularly, there's one study that was kind of done that's been trotted out in a lot of the interactions that we've had with policymakers and other folks following the change uh, by Garovich out of New York in the late 1990s that, you know, has some limitations. This is the same paper that Malincrot sent me, and it's not the only time it came up. People reference it a lot. I remember one time the paper came up at a meeting with the BC College of Pharmacists and the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Ministry of Health. It was basically used as proof that what we're experiencing couldn't actually be about the medicine itself. So now I wanted to know, can this paper actually tell us anything about what happened in BC? It's, it's a small study. It's only 18 people. What, the, what our finding uh, we, we draw from the study has to be taken into consideration of, like, we are just talking about 18, 18 patients. The, the other, the other, limit, the other uh, thing that I think is sometimes overlooked about, about this study is that this study looked at people who were already on methadose. In our case, in, in British Columbia, there so was... So it didn't even test the old versus the new methadose? What, it didn't but, even look at that. No, it's that's what I'm saying. It's a different question. That's what that, that's <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the more I learn about this, the whole mess, the more pissed off I feel. <laughs> so I'm looking at that paper now. And down at the bottom in the acknowledgement section, it says, This research was supported by a grant from Malincrot Chemical Inc. You know, it makes me wonder, what does Mark Gurevich himself think about this? All right, here we go. Hello? Hi, this is Sam Fenn calling from Crackdown Podcast. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing good, too. Our producer talked to Dr. Gurevich on the phone. He's now the chair of the Department of Population Health at New York University. Are you, are you very aware of what happened in B.C. Uh, back in February of 2014? I had not been aware until you reached out to me. So we brought him up to speed. We sent him Ryan and O'Henya's studies, and we even sent the email that Malincrot had sent to me back in 2014. And then we asked, 
how do you feel about your research being used to avoid addressing what we are experiencing? Your paper, and I just wonder, you know, how that makes you yeah. feel. I think that what is important in treating this condition is how people feel. That's when we, when we use methadone, we try to eliminate craving and withdrawal. And so if we published a study, you know, 20 years ago that says these three doses appear to, uh, uh, formulations appear to us to be bio, uh, um, bioequivalent, uh, and now in real life, uh, something is experienced by very many people, then there's a mismatch. So I don't know where the, you know, what the answer is. I don't know if, uh, you know, if we use a, a more uh, heterogeneous uh, uh, sample, including people who are actively using, if we would have found something different. Uh, I don't know, perhaps the exact formulations uh, uh, aren't the same as, as the ones that we use here in the uh, study that, was, that were being changed from. So, you know, there are a variety of uh, issues, but I certainly don't think it's reasonable to point to a single uh, point of evidence um, uh, as, as uh, automatically or in some way in a blanket fashion uh, being a counterweight to a lot of uh, experience that, that's happening uh, and that's being reported on as well. And so there's nothing about the research that you did back in 1999 that would say, for instance, make you think it was redundant for people on the ground here in Vancouver to um, to try to figure out if it is actually pharmacodynamic what's happening? No, I think it's perfectly reasonable to try to figure that out. It's, it's a large number of people. We had only 18 people in our study. It was a very, you know, carefully done study on a small number of people. Um, but if you're now uh, encountering a situation where hundreds or thousands of people are reporting some symptoms in the association with the change, of course, I think it would be reasonable, you know, to take a careful look and see what's going on. Just reasonable, or, or you would you would think it was, like, very important that we do that? I would think that it would be important to, uh, to take a look in a careful and thoughtful and thorough way as to what's going on, of course. This was the study that they were always throwing at me, and even the author doesn't think it proves anything about what's happening to us. I never thought that this was all in our heads. I never did. Too many people have told me the exact same story. I don't have a lab. I can't prove exactly what's going on. And I still don't know. But neither do they. So why won't the government just err on the side of caution and give us the old methadone back? So here we are in the middle of a damn overdose crisis. Thousands of people are dying. And we can't move the needle on what, frankly, should be for government the easiest, quickest win of the overdose crisis. But there's this much bigger question. It's why, why don't we accept the reporting of people who use drugs when they're saying, this isn't working for me and it's negatively impacting my life? And beyond that, why aren't we adequately involving people on methadone, people who use drugs, and all sorts of people with lived experience relevant to policy changes in the very thing that we're actually doing? When you do journalism, you're supposed to report the facts. But in the middle of an overdose crisis, facts can be hard to come by. Sometimes people just die. There's no newspaper article and no one launches a huge investigation. When that happens, their friends and family are just left to wonder. 
What if they'd kept getting the old methadone? Would that have made a difference? Can you, uh, can you tell us about Lori Preston? So, Lori Preston was one of the BCA POM board members that had found herself. She's dead now. Lori was one of the people who the system failed. And do you remember when Lori used to have that place and she'd she do the Christmas so decorations proud. and the Christmas dinners and she was like her whole, she just, she was like little Martha Stewart of that building almost. Do you remember? She was. She was. She did something for everybody. I got to read a Christmas card that she never received from one of her best friends. And she didn't get it because she died before. And it said how much he loved her and how he was thanking her for all the stuff that she did. And he gave that to us to read and see. <laughs> this is not fair and it's not right. It's inhumane. This is not right. This is Canada in the year 2019 and people are dying because because they're trying to have a better quality of life with a prescription drug that is legal instead of being on the street or breaking into fucking houses or robbing jewelry stores. And that's where lots of people are. And that's not because they want to be there. It's because they have no fucking choice. Is there anything that's a mystery to you still about what happened that you'd want to know the answer to? When they, when they knew scientifically that this was not working properly for people and, they, and, and, and we had to go through it anyways, why are you torturing us? Why? So you want to know why they... Why they made the switch. Yes, and why did they have they not made it available to those who want it back? Especially when there is a crisis, an opiate crisis going on that's killing four people a day. Why not? What the fuck is wrong with you people? We sent Malincrot Pharmaceuticals questions about our story. They wrote that they quote kindly declined to comment. The Provincial Ministry of Health also did not respond to our inquiries. The BC College of Pharmacists also declined our request for an interview. Instead, they provided us with a one-sentence statement. Quote, Using a commercially available drug over a pharmacy-compounded drug is a required practice for public safety. Today, Ray is still on methadose. Laura and I are on Metadol, an alternative to methadose that we found last summer. Seems to work better, but shortages mean that only around 70 people in BC have been able to get special access. Two weeks ago, Laura's pharmacy told her that they're running out. This is the story of thousands, but it's also Cherise Kiwatin's story. I interviewed Cherise for an article back in 2014. She'd been on methadone for a decade, and she hadn't used for years and years, she told me. But after the switch, it was withdrawal and back to dope. I was really sad to go back to that stuff. I thought it was over, she'd said. Why would they change something that's already working? After that, Cherise never really found a treatment that worked for her. 
and she tried many. She never got more than a few hours' peace from dope sickness. And now she's gone. I don't really know how to talk about this much more than that. We're going to have a proper memorial for her, and I'll probably have more to say later. But now, BCA Palm and Crackdown have some demands. First, we demand access to the old methadone, immediately. And we demand choice. Suboxone, slow-release oral morphine, injectable dilaudid, prescription heroin, whatever. Give us what works. And so that this never happens again, we demand to have a say in policy decisions about our lives. Nothing about us without us. And we demand an apology from the Ministry of Health, the College of Pharmacists of BC, and from Malincrot Pharmaceutical. And finally, we demand a formal investigation into why Methodos failed. Uh, you know, normally I play on a full-body jumbo or, or So should we just uh, sit on the stairs here or something like that? Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, and Cherise Kiwatin. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter at Garth Mullins. Crackdown is produced by Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Sam Finn, and Gordon Caddick. This month, our lead editorial consultant was Laura Shaver, and our lead producer was Sam Fenn. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, a research scientist and lead of the qualitative and community-based research program of the BC Centre on Substance Use. Ryan is also an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Music for this episode was written and performed by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, and myself. Crackdown theme song was written by Sam and I, with accompaniment from Dave Jens, and Ben Appenheimer. And we also heard music from Ray. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is at crackdownpod.com. You can email us at info at crackdownpod.com. A new episode drops the last Wednesday of every month. Thanks for listening. Here's a little blues instrumental. those low-down methodos blues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>